Luke, uh, I did a special uh, kind of a follow-up message from the book of Ephesians, uh, and we talked about the church being a family, but also then our role as a family, and uh, I mentioned that we'd be back in Luke today, and, and we are. So Luke chapter 19, uh, make sure if you can get my one deck queued up, that would be good. There we go. Luke chapter 19, we're going to wrap up chapter 19. Not only does football end today, but the book of, well, the, the chapter of Luke uh, wraps up today. Uh, we got a few more chapters to go in Luke, but we're going to finish the 19th chapter. We're going to pick it up with verse 41. Anyone need a Bible? Raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. Does anyone need a Bible? So you can follow along with us. Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 41, and we'll be reading the remainder of the verses 41 through 48. Verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children with you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Those are powerful words from Jesus, aren't they? I don't know if most people know that Jesus talks like this. If people that are in your neighborhood, the people at your workplace, do they know that Jesus speaks this way? A heavy, heavy stuff, isn't it? Let's go on, verses 45 through 48. Then he went into the temple and began to drive those out who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And I pray that's us this morning. They were attentive to hear him. Father, we ask that we would be attentive to hear your voice, not mine, but the voice of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem this last week before the cross, uh, traditionally, and remember that the, the Jewish day uh, is different than our day. Our day, we think, starts at midnight and uh, goes till the following midnight. But Theirs was when the sun would set, that started the new day, and then it would go all the way to the setting of the sun the following day. But keeping in mind the crossover of our days, a Saturday-Sunday, for example, traditionally Jesus entered Jerusalem, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, which many people refer to as Palm Sunday. He entered what would be that Sunday, and throughout that week, there was something taking place each day. He would come back to the temple area, and each day he would be addressing something specific until follow, finally he would be falsely accused and there would be the cross. But all that would take place in this final week. But as Jesus approaches Jerusalem during this last week before the cross, he will be indicted falsely, right? He's going to be indicted falsely by his accusers. But he's indicted nonetheless by the religious and by the religious leaders gathered in Jerusalem who are gathered there even more than normal, far more of the religious leaders are in Jerusalem at this time. Why? Because it's the Passover. So you've got many different 
uh, religious leaders, even from faraway towns that would be the rulers of synagogues, they're also there. So you've got a massive group of the religious leaders. The Sanhedrin, of course, is gathered there. Now, mind you, the religious leaders have in their own minds, they've already indicted Jesus. They've already put a death warrant out for him. You know, they had heard what he did with Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead over in Bethany. Uh, they've already indicted him in their minds. They're just waiting for the right time to formally act upon it. You see here in verse uh, 47, it says, and they sought to destroy him, but they couldn't do anything just yet because the people were still so much listening to him. But Jesus, well, someday he's going to judge the whole world in righteousness. And he has some indictments of his own, doesn't he? He has some indictments of his own to levy during this Passover week. So before he goes to the cross, as they've, in their minds, indicted him, he is going to first indict them. His indictment, unlike theirs, is just, it's accurate, it's fair. His indictment is just, it's accurate, and it's fair. Christ knows that as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, he's going to be inspected. Now, what the priest had to do with the Passover lamb is they had to inspect it for several days, and they had to take the lamb and inspect and make sure there was no blemish, because if they found one, they couldn't use that lamb. But they're going to inspect Jesus the same way. They don't know they're inspecting the spotless lamb of God. They just think they're trying to find a way to catch him. And that'll come in the subsequent chapters. But as they are inspecting him, these religious and political leaders, they're going to seek a way to discredit and destroy him. But as they intend to inspect him during this time, he's going to be doing some inspection of his own. Looking at where they're at. Looking at where the city's at. Understand that with Christ, Christian, understand this even in our lives, Jesus is always inspecting. Did you know that? Did you know he's inspected our life this past week? Did you know he's kept a record of every single thing we've done? Aren't you glad that you have the throne of grace? Because every time he inspects and we come and say, here's what we found, he goes, yeah, I found the same thing. We lay it back at the altar, slate clean, right? We're covered by the blood. But he's always inspecting um, he, he's not just my Savior. He's also my Lord, my Master. He really is my boss. I told the, the folks on Wednesday night, you know, we're working for not our salvation anymore. That was done by grace, but we are getting promoted in the faith as we work unto the Lord, as we serve Christ. So he's always inspecting, always examining. Jesus inspects nations. Did you know he, he's inspected North Korea? Do you know he's inspected Russia? Do you know he's inspected Finland? Name a country he's inspected. He can tell you every single thing, right and wrong, about every nation on earth. And every nation has some wrong things. And every nation does some things, by God's common grace, right here and there. He's inspe he inspects institutions. He inspects families. He inspects individuals, of course. An inspection from Jesus will always reveal some flaws. Wouldn't you agree that if he inspects, every, if he inspects your family, do you think he's going to find a flaw or two? Of course. 
He inspects this church family. I know he's going to find flaws. Some of the ones I see in our own church, I, like, I pray, Lord, get us past that point. We all have flaws. You have them. I have them. But isn't it great when you can look back and say, that's no longer a real heavy flaw in my life? I've grown past that. But he inspects churches. He inspects individuals. He's always going to find something. That's why grace is so essential. As we saw uh, in previous weeks in the parable of Minas, uh, these uh, talents, if you will, that were given, um, he graciously identified faithfulness in two of those servants, didn't he? he? He saw faithfulness in them, which was just obedience. That's what it was. It was obedience. But in spite of imperfection, he still said, well done, even with their imperfections. When you get to heaven, Jesus is never going to say to us at the end of the, end of the age, well done, perfect servant. Well done, faithful servant. Faithful. But he also, not only does he identify faithfulness and obedience, but he also identifies rebellion and resistance, which results not in a commendation of well done, but that will result in an indictment. Now, most of us that are here, we can remember when we got saved, we felt that indictment, didn't we? And it was a good thing to feel it because you, you, you're not going to repent until you know you're wrong. So it was good to feel that indictment. And Jesus still indicts, and here at this time, just as Babylon, if you think back in the Old Testament, Babylon, when Daniel was there, and uh, Belshazzar was throwing this great feast, and their hand comes up on the wall, starts to write, Mene, Mene, Teko, Yefarsin, right? Writes on the wall. And what Daniel told Belshazzar, he said, uh, your city has been weighed like in scales and found wanting. Belshazzar was killed that night and Babylon was sacked by the Medes and the Persians. And so just as that city was found weighed and wanting, Daniel gave the indictment, but Daniel didn't give the indictment. The finger of God gave the indictment. Daniel just said what it said. And so here we have the finger of God as well as Jesus is looking towards the city and he levels an indictment. Interestingly enough, Babylon, who received that indictment, is the nation that actually destroyed Jerusalem the first time and destroyed the temple. Remember the temple Solomon built? That was destroyed by Babylon. Later, Babylon received an indictment. So Jerusalem indicted, then Babylon indicted. Now it's Jerusalem's turn again, 600 years earlier. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our Time in God's Word this morning, as you see on the screen, An Indictment from Messiah. An indictment from Messiah. This is, like I said, this is not normally what most people think about Jesus saying. But if you're new to Calvary Chapel and you're visiting here with us this morning, it's your first time here, this is why we go verse by verse to the Bible. Because we want to hear the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we like. True? Jesus said this as much as he said, well done, good and faithful servant. But these things we, we need to understand. What, what does it apply to us? What does he want us to understand in our lives. And we'll look at two things this morning. Look at two things. His anguish and his anger. Just two. We've had the Lord's Supper this morning, so a slim down outline, if you will. But there's a lot of meat even in these two things. His anguish and his anger. One of the many distinctly different things about Jesus. Wouldn't you think there's a lot of difference between Jesus and us? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but one of the many differences between Jesus and us is he knows all things 
and he knows things as they actually are. We think we know how some things are, and we find out later, well, boy, was I wrong about that. Jesus has never said, boy, was I wrong about that. Never. He's always been right about every single thing. Well, now, we know people who think they're always right, don't we? And then we say something, have you ever walked on water? You've heard that term? Well, we know who that applies to. Because we understand only one man's walked on water. Jesus is distinctly different from us. He knows things exactly as they are. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he knows the condition of the city. He doesn't need a report. He doesn't need someone to tell him, hey, this is what's going on in Jerusalem. He knows what's going on in Jerusalem. He knows the condition of each and every heart within the city. Every detail, every single thought, every attitude. He knows with certainty that he himself, he knows with certainty that he himself is what they need. Did you know Jesus knows for certainty that he is what Chesterfield County needs? He knows that he's what people in prison need. He knows that he's what people that are uh, trapped in false religions need. He knows that people that are worshiping themselves need. They need him. He knows that, but he also knows that collectively they don't believe that. He knows that Jerusalem doesn't believe that. He knows he's what they need, but he knows they don't believe he's what they need. He also knows precisely what the future of the city is. And guess what? It moves him to what? Tears. He knows the condition of the city. He knows the condition of New York City. He knows the condition of Las Vegas. He knows the condition of Miami. He knows the condition of Richmond. I guarantee you the same thing. It would move him to what? Tears. He knows the condition. What takes place here, it actually concludes Jesus' public ministry towards the nation state of Israel. This is kind of him closing the books, saying, it's sealed. Your state of resistance is sealed. Sad, isn't it? But that's what's going to bring him to where? The cross. Because the full rejection is going to bring him to Calvary. And so even in our full rejection, aren't you glad that Jesus blazes through it with him going to the cross? Take a look at um, his anguish first. Uh, as I mentioned, so this closes the public ministry, if you will. They, will. they will inspect him over the next several days as the spotless lamb. But it codifies their guilt. Codifies their guilt that they have had Jesus' witness personally against the city to say, you've had your time, and this your day of visitation, and this was your choice. Look at his anguish if you're taking notes this morning. Reasons for his anguish, we'll get to that in just a second. Jesus, he's now, he's now just days from the cross. He, of course, knows this. No one else there knows he's going to go to the cross. He's the only one that knows definitively he's going to the cross. Other people are they're plotting, figuring out how they can kill him, how they can get rid of him, but he knows he's going to the cross. He knows this, but the mass of people that are gathered here for Passover, they don't know this. They don't know this. They've just been waving palm branches and putting their clothes down and uh, Hosanna in the highest and all that good stuff. They don't even know that they themselves will play a role in him being condemned to death. You know, many of the people that you work with, they don't know that they played a role in Jesus dying on the cross either. We didn't know until we got saved, right? Took God opening the word to show us. In a wider sense, remember, we've all played a role 
in the death and the murder of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Every single one of us put the nails into him. But those that are there this final week, those that were there this final week, they essentially, get this, they essentially speak and act on our behalf. Does that make sense? See, Adam and Eve sinned on our behalf. We would have done the same thing. Well, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have done that. I'm pretty sure we would have. God knows everything. You know, oh, yeah, you'd have done it too. If we were in Jerusalem, we also. So they're speaking and acting on our behalf. Many would turn from just days earlier saying, Hosanna, blessed is the king, to what words? Crucify him. Hosanna early in the week, crucify him later in the week. Some of the same people. Not all the same people, but some of the same people. But as the day of his death and atonement draws near, Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and he's overwhelmed with grief overwhelmed. It's not just tears running down his face. That would be sad enough, wouldn't it? How many of you would like to see Jesus just have tears running down his face? You know that he does, but it's really not. Those of us that love him now, we don't want to see that anymore, right? We're glad he rules and reigns. But that would be sad enough to see. But he doesn't just have tears running down. It says he wept. Do you understand the difference between just tears running down your face and weeping? If you've been to the Middle East, if you've seen a Middle East funeral... Weeping is a heavy, deep from the soul kind of thing. <coughs> the Greek word is the type of mourning that would take place at a funeral. That's the Greek word that's used here for wept. And the compassion Jesus had for Jerusalem, his beloved city. They don't realize that he was before time, he put Jerusalem there, he put David there. It's his city. They think it's their city, but it's his city, his beloved city. And he's come there to rescue, hasn't he? He's came on a rescue mission. He came to rescue the people of Jerusalem. And knowing that they are rejecting his rescue, it brings him to a place of intense, intense grief. Why? Well, let's look at the reasons why. First, he knows what Jerusalem has missed. What does it say in the text? It says... If you had known, even this day, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. If you had known this day. And I still, I, I, and I look back and I see celebrities that have died. Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson. I've mentioned these, but you know them all. And you know that they search for everything to find peace. If they had known, and I know that someone had shared the gospel with them at times, but they just didn't believe it was possible that something as simple as the gospel could make them happier than millions and millions of dollars. But what God says is true, not what our mind thinks is true. The mind will deceive us because Satan could riddle the mind with Eve and say, this will actually make you happier than what God hath said. But Jesus says, I'm the only one. He's called the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Means he, he uh, the best way to describe it in the Hebrew is basically like a, thinking of a faucet. Jesus turns it on, peace comes out. Jesus turns it off, there is no peace. So you can't buy it. I was at, we were doing a Bible study with uh, our family yesterday, and I, I asked our daughters, I said, how much money does it take to buy peace? 
And they came up with the conclusion there was no amount. So why does everyone keep hunting it down? Because they don't believe what you... If you had known the things that make for your peace, Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, because the world's give peace is so temporary. I tried to explain in our family, because we, we actually like sweets in our house. Do y'all? I wish I didn't. I really wish I hated them, but I don't. So I have to resist them. But I say, you know, you know when you're eating that last bite of a really good donut, and you're, all, you're sad even before you finish the bite, because you know it's about, it, the good times are over. You're already thinking about the next time that there'll be such a donut in your hand. Right? You ever feel that way? Am I the only one that the last bite, you're already bummed it and you're like, can't even enjoy it because you're, oh man, that was so good, but it's over. And I, I'm too old to have a second. So, he came to give peace, but they didn't know it. And it would last. Remember at the woman at the well, Jesus said, I'll give you living water, you'll never thirst again. She, she didn't know what she was talking about. I'll take a glass of that. You mean I can drink one drink and never be thirsty again? I'll take that drink. But he wasn't talking about that water, was he? He says, living water. That makes sense? Jesus was saying, look, the kind of peace I give you, you won't, you won't ever reach a point where you're thirsty for it again. You'll actually have it springing up within you. This is the kind of peace that he came to bring Jerusalem, but Jerusalem didn't see it. He didn't understand This year day, what does Jesus mean by that statement? He had personally and physically come to the nation of Israel. This year day, he had personally and physically come. Now, I have Jesus living personally in my heart. And I sense the presence of God in my life, and I hope you do too. But I've never personally touched Jesus' nail-pierced hands and feet yet. One day we will. But Jesus had physically come in their presence personally. He was literally there. They could actually touch him. See him, hear him. He wasn't born in China. If you're Chinese, I'm sorry. He wasn't born there. He wasn't born in Siberia. He wasn't born in Africa. He wasn't born in Brazil or Mexico or North America. He was born in Bethlehem because he came specifically to the nation of Israel. This was Israel's day. This was Israel's day. He had come specifically, first and foremost, not only to Israel, but he came first to Israel. And they had to reject him. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 25, Jesus said himself, I was not sent except to the lost of the sheep, lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, that's where the Father sent me, was the lost in Israel. Matthew 21, 5, the same uh, as he came in on that foal of a donkey. Uh, the pro- quoting the prophet, he says, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. He was their king coming to them lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. Jesus came to his people first as their king, and they partially recognized it, enough to say, Hosanna, blessed be the king, but they only had it up here. It wasn't here. They cried, Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? It means save us. That's a good thing to say when you see Jesus. But do you mean that? He knew they didn't mean it. Save us. Save us, we pray. But they weren't thinking of their sins when they were saving us. That was the problem. They were saying, save us from Caesar. We don't want to pay taxes to Rome. Did any of you enjoy paying taxes? No. Every political campaign down through the ages is going to save us in taxes. Somehow it never seems to work. But nevertheless, we'll hear it all over again. 
But they didn't like that. They didn't like paying taxes to Caesar any more than any of us like paying taxes. But they wanted more than just out from under the tax burden. They wanted to be sovereign again. They were kind of a puppet of Rome. And they were thinking of their place under the Roman rule, not their place under sin. That's not what they were thinking. And he had come to give them peace. Peace with God. Peace with God. Not peace with Caesar. Peace with God. But due to the hardness of their hearts, their eyes, he said, you couldn't, they're hidden from your eyes now. Their eyes were becoming more blind instead of better vision. Now, as we get older, our eyes get worse, don't they? I can get an amen from some of you that are up there. You know that your eyes get worse with age. I didn't always wear glasses. I have them right here. I now need them. But spiritually speaking, folks, we have a chance for our eyes to get clearer, better vision. You know, it said of Moses that he had the same eyes of a young man even at, at, at the age of 120. Why was that? Well, God used a physical thing in his life to show that spiritually we can have great vision late in life if we stay close to the Lord. But they weren't seeing clearly. They actually were seeing worse because every time Jesus spoke in their presence, if they rejected the witness, their eyesight got worse. He is often reproved, hardens his heart. The heart becomes harder when we don't respond to what the Lord is telling us. They're becoming more blind rather than able to see. And it breaks Jesus' heart. To see them miss the plan of peace that the Father was willing to provide. This is what breaks his heart, that they would miss peace and salvation. Christian, what brings us to tears? What brings us to tears? Does the blindness of those without Christ actually trouble us, or do we not really care? Eh, I'm saved. Does it break our hearts to see people without peace and without Christ? Are we just comfortable where we're at? Or do we really feel an unsettling that other people aren't ready to meet the Lord? You, know, you, you heard last week in Ministry Sunday, we're a group of families that are attempting to bring others into the family of God. That's our calling. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. That's what Jesus told us to do. He told us to have this same burden he has. I quote every now and then this one from Spurgeon. And you can get mad at him, but he's already with the Lord if you want to. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. You can be sure of that. That's what he said. And I believe it's true. Now, I believe many Christians, even in this room, do have a desire to, for people to be saved, but now you have to move from the, the desire for people to be saved and let the Holy Spirit take action in your life. I believe many of you want people to be saved. But beyond a wish, do we actually care? Do we actually care that people are get saved? Do we care enough to pray and take action? We need to pray until we do care. Does that make sense? Pray until you care. Don't wait to care. Pray until you care. Jesus said, tarry here until I come from on high and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You have to tarry sometimes, don't we? Until we're burdened for souls. Jesus was burdened. He loves souls. Isn't that great? And he still does. He still does. Jesus knew what their second thing, not only what Jerusalem had missed, but what was coming upon Jerusalem. Not only what they had missed, but what was coming. Jesus knew they're all, what their blindness would ultimately bring. It would bring utter 
destruction. See, he's already seen the future. And he grieves at what will become of Jerusalem and some of them in the midst. Some of them would be alive, remember. Some of these people are going to be alive and they're going to see this come to pass. Folks, we've been praying for revival for our nation. Um, less than 40 years, less than 40 years from the time that Jesus weeps over the city, less than 40 years later, the city would be destroyed. Less than 40 years. They have no idea this is coming. When he's saying to them, for the days will come upon you and enemies surround you, if anyone even believed what he said, they'd say, oh, it's probably about a thousand years away. Do you know how many people think that about our own nation? Oh, if something really, really bad were going to come from the hand of God, it's got to be eight generations away. Couldn't possibly be in my lifetime. Less than 40 years, the city of Jerusalem would fall exactly as Jesus would say, exactly as he'd said it. We pray for revival. We just prayed. You guys stood with me. We pray, we pray every Sunday for revival. We pray in our personal lives for this nation. What happens in the next 35, 40 years here? What's going to happen in the next 35, 40 years here? Do you realize God is keeping an account of where we're at? Oh, yeah. He knows exactly what will happen in the future if we don't turn. Right now, we're sitting in church, right? Great place to be. I'm glad you're all here. I'm glad you're not at home reading the paper, eating eggs Benedict like your neighbors are. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're in the house of the Lord. I'm glad to be here. I'm not here because I have to be here. I enjoy being here. But tonight, some of you will be here. We'll, we'll, we'll put the Super Bowl on. Not that that's a spiritual thing. It's really not. It's fellowship. We're going to hang out. Most of you probably will watch 10 minutes of the whole game, just chit-chatting. It's like background white noise, for some, especially some of you ladies. It'll be background noise. And we'll be watching it with more than 100 million Americans tonight. More than 100 million people will be watching the Super Bowl. And as I mentioned, we have to block the commercials. We have to block the halftime show because of the filth that's so appealing and so normal in our culture that they think it's normal to use this stuff where God thinks it's offensive. And of course, he's right. For many, the Super Bowl tonight is their church service. That is their church. I'm not speaking down. I love those people. I, I've worked in the business world, as you guys know, for 17 years. I witnessed the people that, that, uh, that loved. I mean, golf might have been their God. I had one guy that used to tell me, he said, yeah, every time I'm golfing on Sunday mornings, every time the church bells ring, I feel guilty. I'm like, well, why don't you do something about it? Now, the vast majority of people, their God is their hobbies, their careers, their entertainment, their sports, their food, their children, their possessions. These are the things they truly worship. See, God knows the heart. We can tell, oh, I don't really worship that stuff. And even us in here, we find ourselves, I find myself guilty sometimes of over-investing and falling into worshiping something that is not the Lord. Amen? And the Lord has to get me back in line. But Jesus says, turn to me while you can. But here's the thing, Jerusalem didn't. He said, turn, Jerusalem didn't. Jerusalem's like, nah, well, we're good. We'll be okay. In AD 70, after, so AD 70, 
Jesus is, we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of the early, you know, we don't know exactly the year, but maybe A.D. 32, A.D. 33, somewhere in that range, uh, there's disagreement on the exact date. But Jesus is going to go to the cross that week. So less than 40 years later, in A.D. 70, a Jewish revolt that started in A.D. 66 uh, leads to war with Rome. Now, you don't really want to pick a fight with Rome if you're as small as Jerusalem is, but eventually the Romans surround Jerusalem and they lay siege mounds against the city. Exactly what Jesus says would happen. He said they'll build embankments around you. Rome built embankments around. They laid siege for how many days? 143 days. Titus, who would later become emperor, he leads the siege. He would later become the Caesar himself. Uh, the resulting siege killed at least, at least 115 thousand people. Tacticus says it was 600,000. Josephus says more. A lot of people. As many as 100,000 Jews are taken away as slaves, many of them will be put in coliseums with lions or um, they are killed uh, with, uh, whether it be wild beasts or they are put in those gladiator games. Many of them will be slaves and have to dig in the mines in Egypt. Many will go and serve as slaves in Rome around the world more than 100, or close to 100,000. Listen to the eyewitness, uh, take a look at the picture here. This is a, a rendering of the siege of Jerusalem. Listen to the words of Josephus. He was an eyewitness account. Matter of fact, he actually was an emissary on behalf of Titus to try and negotiate a peaceful re resolution, but uh, the Jewish um, rebellion refused. And this is what Josephus writes. Listen closely. While the holy house was on fire... Everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. Nor was there a commiseration of any age. In other words, no consideration of age or any reverence of gravity. Didn't matter what your title or rank was. But children and old men and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner so that this war went round all sorts of men and brought them to destruction, as well as those that made supplication for their lives. In other words, those that begged for their lives and begged for mercy, they were slain mercilessly by the Romans, as, the, as did those that defended themselves by fighting. The flame was also carried a long way and made an echo. The fire was so high and so it made an echo against the um, Mount of Olives. Um, it made an echo together with the groans of those that were slain. And because this hill was so high and the works of the temple were so great, the temple was massive, uh, one would have thought the whole city had been on fire. Nor can one imagine anything either greater or more terrible than this noise. For there was at once the shout of the Roman legions who were marching all together and a sad clamor of the seditious who were now surrounded with fire and sword. Yet was the misery itself more terrible than this disorder for one would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it, that the blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and that those that were slain were more in number than those that slew them. For the ground did not appear visible for the dead bodies that lay on it. This is Josephus' eyewitness account. A horrific day. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to them on a glorious day because it's Passover week. Everyone's there, over a million people. And Jesus is saying, in less than 40 years, this place will be leveled, and it'll be blood flowing, and it'll be absolutely horrific. It'll look like apocalypse. That's what he said. They didn't believe it. Christian, the past is our warning of the future. <laughs> 
Do you believe that? The past is our warning of the future. If you've been with us in Ezekiel, and then when we get to Luke chapter 21, did you know that greater judgment is coming to the world than, than this? This is the foreshadow. I know that's it's heavy. I know. I, I'm, just, I'm just delivering what the message is. This is what took place. Billy Graham has said for years, if God didn't judge America, he would owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. That's true. We need to turn to Jesus, don't we? We need to care. We need moist eyes, don't we? This is why Jesus, this is what broke his heart. See, he, everyone else, he could tell, it's just a factoid, but he saw it. Do you see the difference? 9-11, for those of us who are alive, is not a factoid. We remember the way we felt that morning, don't we? It's not a factoid for us. Some of our kids, it's a factoid. They're, yeah, I heard about that date. It's got a cool name, 9-11, right? Let's take a look at his anger. His anger. Well, the scene changes. He goes in the temple. He goes from weeping to fired up mad. What a contrast. Did you know the Bible says, be angry and do not sin? Do you know it's possible to be angry at the right things? You ever see like, like this murder that took place in Virginia Tech and just makes you mad? about something like that. It's okay to be mad at sin. Just have the right response to it. Don't be angry at people. Jesus was angry at the condition, the sinful condition. He loved people. He wept over the city. Don't be angry at your spouse. Don't be angry at your kids. Don't be angry at other people. But you can be angry at the work of Satan in this world. But what do you do with it? Well, we're not Jesus. We're not supposed to go flip tables in the temple. We take it to him. Remember, God has all authority. Anything he does is righteous. Anything he does is all the authority. But it, the sadness of Jesus, looking over the city, is now matched by his anger towards the condition of the temple. In Mark's gospel, in uh, 11... 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 15 through 17, it tells us that Jesus literally took and flipped the tables. I mean, he came in there and overturned the tables, pushed all the money changers out, drove the animals out, the whole nine yards. And he wouldn't, not only that, Mark tells us, he wouldn't let them come back in. Can you imagine this scene? One man, I took this picture, if you're here Wednesday night in our Ezekiel study, if you're not coming on Wednesday nights, I hope you will. We, we have a good time on Wednesday nights too. But this was, a, this was a scale model. If you go to Jerusalem, we want to go in either, maybe even 2017 or 2018, we want to take a group of you over there that want to go. But if you, if you go there, this at the, um, where they have the Dead Sea Scrolls kept, uh, outside they have a scale model of ancient Jerusalem in the days of Christ. The temple dwarfs this entire city. It's massive. It's huge. It's like putting the Superdome next to your house or something. It's a it was a huge thing. Several, uh, you know, six, seven football fields in, in length, or, or perhaps even a little larger than that. But this is a, is a massive structure at its highest point of the temple, 20-some stories tall. I can't remember the exact number. It might have been 29, but I can't remember the number of that. Don't quote me on it, but it is... 
well over 20 stories high at the highest point. And so you've got this huge structure, and somewhere in here, and you've got a massive, uh, you've got a massive courtyard here, because Herod built it much larger than Solomon's temple was, there was plenty of room to run a market and to sell the, the, uh, the doves and the animals for sacrifice, and it was a highly profitable business. And Jesus is one man. He drives them out. You ever seen when someone is outraged and no one else knows what to do? But Jesus was a controlled, it wasn't like, you know, but it wasn't like he was out of control. He was totally in control. The zeal of the Lord has eaten him up, the scripture says. And he drives them out and he won't let anyone back in. That tells you a little bit about something. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Everyone recognizes authority. Everyone recognizes power. When he decided he would do something, he would do it. He could have cleared them all. He could have incinerated everyone in the temple. He didn't. He drives everybody out. The temple had become a center of, of commerce, a center of enterprise, a center of profit. But that wasn't what Jesus said, that the temple was not supposed to be a center of profit. What would it supposed to be? A house of prayer. Instead of praying, they were money laundering. They were making money hand over fist, trying to turn uh, a commercial enterprise in God's holy place. Why is Jesus so incensed about what's taking place in the temple? Four reasons as we come to uh, near the end here. Four reasons why Jesus is incensed. First off, his father's name is being drugged through the mud. His name, his father's name is being drugged through the mud. Remember Jesus taught us how to pray. He said, hallowed be thy name. People were looking at the God of Israel and say, your God is just like our God. Our God's into money. Your God's into money. Our God's into commercial enterprise. So is yours. No. The name of the Lord is greatly to be praised, not to be slandered. That's the first reason. His father's name. The second, his father's house. Imagine... Some of you that have parents that are elderly, that still have a house, and your parents are going to go away on their, their dream vacation. They're going to go uh, to the uh, Greek Isles or something like that, and they get someone to house sit for them. It's not you because your job, you can't do it, but you decide to check in on the house sitters, and you find that they are trashing your parents' house. Would any of you be bothered by that? See, this is his father's house. Jesus is not happy about them trashing his father's house. If your parents had put someone in charge, and they're actually taking your parents' old photo albums and actually using them in the fireplace to light a fire, you'd be pretty mad, wouldn't you? Yeah. But it gives you an understanding. You've got to understand Jesus, the zeal of his father, he sees his father's house being misrepresented, being misused. He calls it a den of thieves now. That would be the complete opposite. Instead of a house of prayer, it's a place where thieves, after they've robbed and often killed people, would gather and laugh and hold on to the loot and talk about what they had just done. As if, so they're reveling in their sin. Jesus is saying, you have turned the temple into a place of reveling in sin. You ever seen when people revel in their sin and you now as a believer, it just makes you a little nauseous? 
They're reveling in their sin. Jesus, one thing for you to misuse the house, but you've actually turned into a den of thieves. You actually are reveling, and you're proud of your actions. Third thing, his father's holiness. These are reasons for his anger. His father's holiness. Notice that none of it is because Jesus, someone didn't like him. It wasn't the kind of things we get mad about. His father's holiness. You know, in the presence of God, the angels say three things nonstop. Holy, holy, holy. Notice they don't say joy, joy, joy. Love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Grace, grace, grace. Holy, holy, holy. The essence of God. If anyone tells you the essence of God is love, you can, after you get to know them, gently help them understand. God is love. That is one of his attributes. He is the perfect personification of love. But the absolute essence of him is holiness. Love is part of his attributes. But the way he manifests himself, even in the temple, the priest, it said right there, it said holiness to the Lord. That's the essence of God. And his holiness was being compromised. They had turned the place of worship. It was supposed to be worship and prayer. They turned into a money-making machine. And that brings us to the last point. This is how they were doing it. The poor were coming to just, they, the poor had hardly any money. They needed a couple of doves because they didn't, they, the poor did not, they were not able to afford a lamb or some other animal sacrifice. So they would come to purchase a couple little doves and these guys would treat them like the local check cashing place down the street would. Massive interest, Right? We got you for life now because a two, God was hoping that they would come and enjoy their experience of worship, not fall in debt because of it. By the way, beware of ministries that are constantly talking about money. Some things don't change, folks, 2,000 years later. Beware of ministries that always talk about money. And when you see the ministry leaders riding around on private jets, and expensive cars, you should probably run the other direction. That was a free commercial, sorry. <laughs> I apologize for that. No, I don't, anyway. <laughs> See, Jesus, he's defending the honor and glory of God that the religious leaders, they actually claim to worship this God, but they really don't. And we get a foreshadowing here of someday, think about this, folks, Someday, Jesus is going to clean all of Jerusalem up. He's going to clean the whole world up. He's going to drive every sin out. He's going to clean the whole world with his winnowing fan, the Bible says. Do you know that's true? He's going to winnow it all out. He's going to clear Israel of their sin and idolatry. If you were with us in our Ezekiel study, that's chapter 39. It says, no longer will you you'll be serving these false gods. This is, by the way, the second time in his earthly ministry that he's cleared the temple. Did you know he does it twice? The beginning of his three-year ministry, he forms a whip. Remember that? He drives them out with a whip. This second time, he says he's really lifting and turning over the tables. This is the second time in his ministry that he's done this. He did it at the beginning of his ministry, and so now he does it at the end, and it proves what? Well, it proves, one, that they have no regard for Jesus' authority, because even after he cleared it out at the beginning of the ministry, they went right back and did the same thing. Parents, do you like when your kids go in and do the exact same thing you told them not to do? A week later. Well, you might say five minutes later, whatever it may be. But, you know, we're, we're God's kids. We're guilty of the same stuff too, aren't we? God told us to clean our spiritual room. We clean it up and we go right back and mess it up. 
So Jesus did this at the beginning of the ministry. They verify that they have no value in what he says, but they also, they also prove that they have no regard for the God they say they worship because he had told them that the house of the Lord is to be holy and they re-bring in all this enterprise. Their worship is with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. The indictment is now certified. He's wept over the city. He's been angry with the condition and said, "This, it, in a sense, this really is the bed you've made. And it saddens him. He's not saying this because, oh, I'm glad that you get to be judged. No, this is a sad statement. They've been served full notice that the God of uh, that Israel is estranged from God. The spirit has left. They've, they've been estranged from the Lord. They've chosen to be separated from God. Understand, Christian, that the attributes of God are always simultaneously in place. Jesus is indeed gracious and full of love. And that's what I tell people all the time. But understand that if you reject his grace and you reject his love, he's also full of vengeance and he will judge sin and evil. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, Paul understood this. Paul said this about Jesus. When Jesus returns, Paul says this will take place. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those that do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from his glory and power. That's what Paul wrote. Paul said, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not your little, your little toy puppet that you have him do what you want to do. No, he tells us to do what he wants us to do. Amen? He's in charge, not us. Not like the little bobblehead on the front of your uh, on windshield or something. Just enough for me to be in charge here. No. And the world will experience his vengeance, those who have not come to Christ. I want to close with this. Notice here, though, understand that in this point in time, Jesus doesn't destroy the temple. He doesn't destroy the temple. He could have destroyed it. He doesn't need Rome to do his work. He doesn't destroy the temple. Their sin and refusal would later do that. No. He cleared and cleaned the temple. As we close this morning, Christian, what does Jesus want to clean and clear in your life? He doesn't want to destroy your temple. He didn't destroy the temple. He cleaned it. He cleaned it out. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you? Listen. Let us, as we're going to take the Lord's Supper now together, let us willingly carry out the stuff that doesn't belong. Amen? I don't want him kicking it out of my life and driving it out of my life. That's a painful process. Willingly carry it out and actually open the window and toss it out. Amen? He cleans the temple. He wants to clean us. Let's close this in prayer. Father, we bow before you. We know your heart weeps for those that don't have your peace, that don't have your rest, that don't have the assurance of eternal life. And we know, Lord, your desire is to clean hearts of those that are, that are unsaved and those of us, Lord, that are saved, that we've allowed things to come in that really don't belong. And Lord, it's our desire that we would be a clean temple, not only as a body of Christ 
in Calvary Chapel of Richmond as a church, but individually. Lord, if there's any heart here that first needs to accept your terms of peace, in this, their day of visitation, you're visiting right now the hearts of someone in this room, their day of visitation right now, that you would come and your tears for them would result in tears of joy. Before we take of the Lord's Supper together, and I ask the men to come forward, I just, as your heads are bowed, if there's anyone here and you want to give your heart and life to Jesus, say, hey, I want to accept his terms of peace. I want to come to heaven. Just one of the awesome things that happened in the last six weeks, one of the men that's sitting in this room right now who came for several months, you've got to hear his testimony. I can't tell it for him. I told him that I would, when he's ready, he can tell it. He got saved just, I want to say, 10, 10 15 days ago, maybe less. I lose track of time, but unbelievable how he came to Christ. If you want to join and say, you want to give your life to the Lord, just stand right where you're at. The Holy Spirit spoke to you and you say, I I want those conditions of peace. Not just peace today, but for eternity. The presence of God. Just stand right where you're at. Men prepare, we'll be taking of the elements together, but just stand right where you're at. If you're all saved, praise the Lord. But ask Jesus, Lord, do I care? Do I have that same burden you have? Do I have some junk in the temple that you want to toss out? Well, now's the time. Don't, don't take of the Lord's Supper an unworthy man, the Bible says. Just right now ask the Lord to forgive you. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Whatever it is, he'll tell you what the sin is. It might have been you were really unkind to someone in your family this week, and you still haven't asked them to forgive you. Maybe you need to. Maybe some other issue of the mind or thoughts. Let him clean it out. He loves us enough to clean the temple. Amen? Because when the temple gets cleaned out, he restores real worship to it. It becomes a habitation of prayer, not a habitation of lust or greed or anger or unforgiveness. I'm going to ask the men to come forward. Just pray silently. Just Thank the Lord for his grace. Ask him to cleanse you. And the men are going to test out the elements right now.